On Tuesday evening, on the way home from our baseball team party, Andrew Carrillo and I were taking the train back to Manhattan. Shortly after we sat down on the train, he said, so there's something I need to talk to you about. And paused, and then he said, you probably know where this is going. And I said, no, honestly, I have no idea. I thought maybe he was going to comment about being unsure of his availability to play in fall ball. He went on to share that due to job-related factors, he and Caitlin and Theodore would be moving back to Wisconsin in, in November. On Thursday morning, I was in a meeting, and Andrew texted and asked me to call him and said it was urgent. I called, and he immediately picked up and informed me that Caitlin's mother, Wendy, had passed away in her sleep during the night. I was shocked at the news. What do you say? What can you say? It was completely unexpected. A fairly healthy 63-year-old, vibrant, full of life, soon-to-be grandmother, just threw a baby shower for her grandson, passed away in her sleep just a few hours earlier. How do you comfort people who are experiencing such sudden loss? A few hours later, Andrew texted again, saying that they were moving up their move to Wisconsin from November to this coming week, and that Sunday would be the last Sunday with us. Now, thankfully, we already had a churchwide fellowship planned for Friday night at the Salyers' house, which would provide an opportunity to express support and care for them. But there on Thursday, as I reflected on these events, I began to think about the possibility of changing this week's sermon to be more directly connected to be more directly hope-filled, and to help us, and to help myself, to lift our gaze heavenward. So we're considering these words today from John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The Gospel of John is built on several themes. One of the most famous themes from this book of John is the seven I am statements. These statements provide a backbone running through the middle of the book from John chapter 6 to John chapter 15. These statements identify Jesus as God through the use of the expression, I am. This term, I am, for the Greek lovers among us, it's the word ego, a me. It is the word, which means eternally existent one, or I am that I am. It is from Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, I am. He is calling himself Yahweh. He is referring to himself with the divine name. But beyond simply that, that expression, I am, there are more words that follow after I am. These seven I am statements point to unique aspects about Jesus' messianic office. The first of the seven I am statements is, I am the bread of life. If you're taking notes and you want to write these, I'm about to list all seven. So number one, I am the bread of life, John 6. Number two, I am the light of the world, John 8. The third, I am the door of the sheep, 
John 10, 7. The fourth, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11. The fifth, I am the resurrection and the life. The sixth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And the last, I am the true vine. John 15. Today, in this message, we're considering number five. I am the resurrection and the life. In this story, which we just read from John 11, Jesus heard the report that Lazarus was sick. Lazarus, his friend, the brother of two of his dearest friends, Mary and Martha. He received this word from Mary and Martha, and that message was begging him to come heal their brother. But even though he received this petition, this request, Jesus waited two more days before leaving to go to be with them. It was clearly a two-day journey. So it actually took him four days from the time he received the message till the time he arrived. Jesus also assured them that this illness was not unto death. In the middle of these details found in verse 4 and verse 6, we see what feels like a strange note. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then he says he waited two more days before heading to them. Why does it say that? Why is it structured like this? Why does he say that? Not only why does the text say it, but why does Jesus say it to them? We know lots of things happen that are not recorded in the Bible. But here in John 11, verse 4, he says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. He says that. Then it says he loves them. And then it says in verse 6, When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. This seems like a contradiction. If you said to your friend, I'm thirsty, and they have a bottle of water in their hand, and they say, I love you. I love you so much, and I have this bottle of water in in your hand. And, and, And they say, well, I'm thirsty. And then you wait two more days to give it to them. That would seem odd. That would seem strange to say, to say that you love someone and you have the ability to help them. You have the ability to give them what they're asking for, but you delay two days. It's strange. Have you ever wrestled with God's timing for answering your prayers? You've begged God to answer your request and you've grown weary as you waited. Think about that. Mary and Martha sent people to go find Jesus and to get him to come to heal their brother. And while they're waiting, they're wondering. And then their brother dies. Have you ever wrestled with God's timing to answer your prayers? What is your temptation in such circumstances? How are you 
tempted or challenged in those moments. Perhaps it's to doubt God's love for you or to doubt God's power to answer or even to doubt God's word. Because you can see these paradoxes. You can see these seeming contradictions. God, I thought you said that you loved us. If you loved me, why are you waiting to answer? You said this is not a sickness unto death. Why did you wait until he died? Or maybe, maybe you waited until he died because you actually can't do anything about it and we didn't want to have this awkward situation where you came to heal him and then he died anyway. So maybe that's why. Maybe we're just excusing this. We're we're just waiting until we have a really convenient excuse for why he didn't answer. These, no doubt, were temptations that Mary and Martha were faced with, and I think that they're the same temptations that we would grapple with as well. When we are wrestling with God's timing, when we have asked God to answer and to help us and to deliver us, to heal someone. And we're waiting. And we doubt God's love for us, or we doubt God's power to answer, or we doubt God's word. Please, my friends, rest assured that God's love for you is unshaking. Rest assured that God's love for you is unshaking, though the earth be moved and the mountains are thrown into the depths of the sea. God's love for you is unshaking, even when everything in your life is turned upside down. God's love for you is unshaking, even when your world is falling apart, or your world has completely fallen apart. Even in those times, you are still loved by God. And dear friends, please remember, this is true, not just when you're the victim. But it is true also when it is your fault. God still loves you even when your life turns upside down because of your own actions, your own stupidity, your own sin. Did you think that God's love for you was conditioned upon your obedience? We're tempted to think that way. Because when we sin, or we do something that we should not have done, and then we start feeling like, okay, okay I, need to, I need to steer clear of God for a while, because he probably doesn't like me right now, and probably doesn't want me around. But please remember these beautiful words from 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. Or these words from Romans 5.8 that say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not look, sit back and wait for us to get our act together before he sent his own son. Jesus did not sit back and wait for us to be lovely or lovable or worthy before he came into the world. But no, he looked upon us as sinful, rebellious people and loved us and came into the world to live and to die and to rise again for us.
Our text today, which we've read, verse 3 says, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Our text also says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Even in the face of such confusing circumstances, Jesus' love for his friends is unquestioned. It is unquestionable based on our text, even though the circumstances might raise such questions. Jesus, if you loved them, why didn't you go? Jesus, if you loved them and you knew all things, right? Right, Jesus? Why didn't you go there before you were even called. This fact that Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is true even when Jesus delays four days to come. It is true even when you have begged for his intervention and rescue and his timing is not your timing. The significance of this four days is that in Jewish tradition, a person's soul would linger over their body for three days. So they might revive, they might come back, they might not actually be dead dead, they might resuscitate. But at the four-day mark, no, they're, they're, they're done. At the four-day mark, the body is decomposing. At the four-day mark, it's too late. Not only did Jesus wait until Lazarus died, but he waited till after the expiration date on the corpse had passed and all hope of resuscitation or resurrection was passed. He waited four days. Yet he loved them. You see Jesus' love for them visualized in verse 35. These famous words that make the shortest verse in the book. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus is weeping tears of compassion. Tears of compassion for their heartache, which he can plainly see. These tears of Jesus are a touching thing to consider. I'll remind you two other places where the tears of Jesus are Described for us. Remember Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus' words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. These are emotionally rich words. The cry of his heart being expressed as he stands on a hill overlooking Jerusalem. Crying, weeping at their rejection of him. In these words, you can see Jesus' love and compassion for these people who had utterly rejected him. You can see his heartache over their horrible choices. The third reference 
where we see the tears of Jesus described as Hebrews 5.7. Hebrews 5.7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. This is a reference to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. This prayer before he goes to the cross and dies. When he's crying out, my God, my God, if it be possible, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. In this cry, you see in Jesus this holy horror of this of the sin that he's come face to face with. The sinless Son of God has come face to face with the wrath that is due, justly due to us, due to our sin. This wrath is soon to fall upon him, his most pure and precious head. And as he contemplates this, as he thinks on this, he is filled with terror, with grief, with sorrow. Think of it. A world of sinners. All of those billions of sins. And the wrath of God, of an eternally holy perfect God, that wrath poured out on him. What was Jesus like? You know, you think about different people and going through different circumstances. You can kind of visualize someone going through a certain thing. You know, a firefighter going through a fire or um, a baker baking cookies, you can think, okay, well, you know, they're ready for this. They can do this thing. It is what they are made for. When you think of Jesus, what was he like? Well, Jesus, he was radiant in purity. Yet he had a depth of wisdom unknown to any other. Have you noticed that in our people that we know that are pure, there's a level of naivety that you see in them. You look at them and you see that smile on their face and you know that person doesn't have a clue. But bless their heart, they're so pure. The purity of Jesus was different than that. It had a lot more depth to it. He had wisdom unknown to any other. He is wisdom personified. What else was Jesus like? By the way, this is a list that could be endless. I have not made an endless list. I just have listed three things. The second is, you see in Jesus the perfection of mercy and compassion, yet with all truth and holiness. In Jesus, you see someone who is perfectly merciful and perfectly compassionate, yet he's not a pushover. 
He's not soft. He has more of a backbone than boiled spaghetti. You see him as this perfection of mercy and compassion with all truth and perfect holiness. He is unique. He is different. He is unlike us. And the third thing I want to mention is you see in Jesus this careful watchfulness over his people. But this care that he extends in his watchfulness over them, for example, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, his disciples, and plenty of others, he carefully cares for them and watches over them without that resentful irritation over their faults and failures. It's difficult to to look at someone closely and to see them doing dumb things, to care for them, to observe all the details of their life without getting a little annoyed when you see them making bad decisions again and again. But that's not the way Jesus relates to his people. So when you think of the wrath of God falling upon his sinless son, I want you to to raise in your mind your view of who that is, who that one is, Jesus, who is facing this horror of the wrath of God. The purest man who ever lived. The most perfect in wisdom and holiness. The most compassionate and wise this one who carefully watched over others yet without resentment or irritation. When we are tempted to doubt God's love, God's power, or God's word, not only should we rest in God's love for us, demonstrated by sending his own son into the world to live and to die and to rise again for us, we also are called to trust God's power, even though we cannot see it, even when he has not yet answered. It may be that the answer is in process. Like the story that we mentioned on Wednesday night, where Daniel has prayed for three weeks And at the beginning of his prayer, an angel has been dispatched from heaven to go to deliver the answer. But a powerful demon intercepts him and they fight for three weeks before backup can arrive and he is able to break free to come to Daniel. Now, if you were Daniel and you're praying for three weeks, but during week number one, you start to doubt and you wonder, God, are you answering? It's been seven days. What about day number eight? Day number nine? Lord, how long? It may be that God is putting pieces into place. And in this way, he is, in fact, answering your prayer, even as you pray, even before you've seen his answer. He is answering your prayer. You just can't see it yet. Think with me about your childhood. Perhaps you asked for your birthday, you asked your mother to make you a special cake. And then she disappeared. And you're like, where's mom? I don't know. She's not here. So you and your siblings begin to to wonder and to worry. 
But what actually happened is that she went to the store, left the oldest in charge, and she's bought the ingredients. And while she's pushing that shopping cart around the store, you're at home thinking that she forgot about you or she abandoned you. You were alone. You were forgotten. And it couldn't be further from the truth because in that moment, she actually has you on her heart and mind and her wallet. But you in your very small childlike mind do not understand these things in that moment. You've forgotten. There might be multiple steps involved in answering your request, and those steps possibly cannot be rushed. Think of your favorite dry-aged tomahawk steak that is aged for 42 days. You can't rush that process. Or think of perhaps your favorite wine that was aged for 60 years before being served. You can't speed that up. These things are not made quickly. You can't microwave your favorite barbecue and have it turn out right. Yet for some reason we think that these things don't apply to God. That we can give him our requests. We can say, God, I need this and I need it right now. But we don't understand that God is doing something much larger that we're not aware of. It may be beyond this. Not only is he putting things in place, perhaps it's you that is in process. And he's waiting until you're ready before he answers. Because he knows that you cannot handle it. I think of my 10-month-old son with this, there are lots of things for him that he is not ready for. And this is almost everything. I mean, the, the kid cannot walk yet on his own, so like he's not ready for a bicycle. He's not even ready for normal books. You know why? Because he rips the pages of them. So there are plenty of books that I have that someday could possibly be his, but when he runs over to them, we just push them back on the shelf because, sorry, kid, you're not ready for that yet. But he wants them. It may be that we are what's in process and God is waiting to answer and to give us, to grant us our request until we are ready. So, Number two, trust in God's power even though you cannot see it, even when he has not yet answered. Number three, believe God's assuring promises. Believe God's assuring promises and trustworthy word even when your mind is flooded with contradictions and your eyes cannot see a way forward. Believe God's assuring promises and trustworthy word, even when your mind is flooded with contradictions and your eyes cannot see a way forward. We have very clearly in our text that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, Lazarus, yet he's delayed. He's waiting. God never lies. Let God be true and every man a liar. God does not lie. You can trust God's promises. When you do not understand God's purposes or plans, you can trust his word. The Bible's full of promises, but here's a few that I'd like to remind you of. Number one, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is a promise of God. Secondly, remember this next one. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You feel like you're in darkness? Jesus has promised to be the light of the world. Thirdly, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Remember this fourth promise of God from John. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my sheep. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Think of this next promise. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned." If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And last, remember this promise. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus, here in our story today, stares death in the face and makes this bold proclamation. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is so bold that he has waited until Lazarus not only dies, but has been dead for four days before he arrives and makes this statement. He makes the statement, to Martha concerning his resurrection of Lazarus in verses 23 through 26. But please notice 
the first two words, I am. As we've mentioned before, this is the divine name, I am. From the Greek, ego, eimi, ego, eimi, E-G-O-E-M-I. This divine name means eternally existent one. There are many things that are implications of this. This means a lot of things, a lot more things than what we have time for right now. But one of the things that this means is Jesus as the eternally existent one. It means he is still the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I was the resurrection and the life but he is still the resurrection and the life. It has been 2,000 years, and Jesus, the eternally existent one, the Lord of glory, is still the resurrection and the life. My friends, this is just as true today as it was when Jesus was in Bethany at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus is still the resurrection and the life. Another thing I'd like you to observe is The word the. He is not a resurrection, but he is the resurrection. He is the only one who can raise the dead. The only one who can raise the dead is the same God who created and sustains life. Jesus is the resurrection. There are not alternate ways of resurrection out there. It's just Jesus. Jesus is the only source of resurrection. So I'll ask you, have you cast all of your confidence on him? All of it. You're not going 50-50, half Jesus, half something else. Half Jesus, half you. So we start off with I am, and then third or second, we have the, and then after the word the, we have the words resurrection and life. Part of the package when you come to Christ is the promise of the resurrection. It's a package deal. When you are saved, when you become a Christian, you get that resurrection life as part of the deal. This resurrection that you receive when you come to Christ is a spiritual resurrection. Jesus raises us from the dead spiritually the moment that we are saved. When a person is saved, when a person is born again, in that moment, a deposit is made in us. This concept of a deposit was very unclear to me before I became an adult and before I moved to New York and before I had to start putting down deposits on apartments. But when you think of a deposit, you need to think about that money. It's a significant amount of money. It's not an amount of money that you would like to ignore. You want that back. It's important to you. When we are saved, a deposit is made in us, or a down payment is made in us. What that deposit is, is the life of God. The life of God is placed in the soul of man, and that life is eternal life. It is actually the Holy Spirit which is placed in you. 
That eternal life is placed inside of you at your salvation, at your conversion, and because of that, you can never die. That's why it's called eternal life. Now, here's the fun thing. I'm always nervous about new thoughts. But here's a thought I had yesterday that I had not had before. I think it's true. This life actually rises through the Christian's life. You who bake bread, think of that dough that you make and then it starts to rise. This life, this eternal life that we are given the moment we believe that that same life rises throughout the Christian life. So you who have been growing in Christ at this church for one or two years, actually have greater life within you today than you did when you first walked through those doors back there. Can you see that? I know that many of you can attest to that, that you are more alive now than you were two years ago or five years ago, that there's more within you, there's more of God in your heart, there is more life in you than there was a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago. But when you're saved, that eternal life begins in that moment. That's what verse 26 is speaking about. You shall live and never die. You receive this spiritual life. Now, that's not all. You also have a physical resurrection, but that physical resurrection will come at the end of the age. When Jesus returns, he will raise his people from the dead. Now, after we're going word by word through this um, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Next, he who believes in me. He who believes in me. This is the most important question for you to consider. I want to know from you. You don't have to answer. Do you believe in Jesus? That's where this whole thing is leading. Do you believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe? Well, belief is the same thing as faith, which is the same thing as trust. Well, what is that? Well, our really old documents called Confessions of Faith describe faith or real faith as knowledge, assent, and trust. What is saving faith? Well, saving faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, so you know the thing. You, you understand the facts about the thing. Namely, Jesus. It's not merely an emotion. Really, it's not about emotions at all. But you know, you know the information. What is assent? Assent is agreement. You give consent to a thing. You you agree. You say, yes, I can be here at this place at this time. And trust. Trust is actual dependence. The illustration that is traditionally given is that of a chair. You trust the chair by sitting in the chair. At the gym, I was working with a 
trainer a while ago and he wanted me to do these squats with a bar on my shoulders and he wanted me to go lower and he's like go down more like further and I'm just like no I can't I can't like I'll lose my balance I'll fall back and he's like no keep going for lower and like I feel like I'm going down like so much but it's probably just like a quarter of an inch a little more down and he says no go down further further and I'm afraid that I'm gonna fall because I've got this weight on my shoulders and I don't want to fall over backwards with this bar so what does he do? Well, he puts a box behind me and says, lower yourself down, sit back until you feel the box or one of those exercise balls. So you're going down, you're leaning back, 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 and you just keep feeling, like, is it back there? Can, I've, I've been going now for like three feet backwards and I'm still not feeling the box. There's a great deal of Lack of trust there. Where you're afraid. I would demonstrate, but this mic is right here and I don't have one on my face and y'all can understand. But what does the trust look like? The trust looks like actually just go all the way back. Just sit down on the box. Trust that the box is there. And so when it comes to Christ, speaking in terms of faith in Jesus, We know certain things about him, facts about Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. He is both God and man. He lived truly, really, never sinned. He died as our substitute. He took our place. The cross wasn't just a a, a moral action to show how to suffer. No, there was much more than that. It was substitution to take the place of the guilty, such as you and me. And we're also believing, as far as facts go, that he rose from the dead on the third day, not metaphorically, not mythically, not some sort of uh, next stage of ancient mythology about a sun god who would die and rise again, like an Egyptian idea. No, this is real. So when we're speaking in terms of knowledge, we are thinking about facts here. Jesus was real. But we're not just thinking those thoughts saying, yeah, I know that the text says this, like a historical critical scholar will say, that's what the text says Jesus was like. But the second component is assent. Do you believe it? Do you agree with it? Not just do I affirm that that's what it says but I agree with it. And then thirdly, do I trust it? Am I willing to sit in that chair? Am I willing to trust my life into this Savior's hands? This is trust in Jesus, not not in yourself. When we speak of truly believing in Jesus, we are not speaking of belief in our works, It's not our moral reform or our good behavior. Hey, if you were to die today and you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, oh, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Not that bad. I know a lot of people worse than me, so you should let me in. Like, I try to help people. I do my job. I'm I'm nice to my friends and family. No, that's not good enough. Saving faith in Christ is not works, it's not moral reform, it's not good behavior, it's not even conservative values. 
It's not even considering yourself a Christian. Thinking that you're a Christian is not being a Christian. Thinking that you're a Christian is not saving faith. Believing in yourself does not save you. Believing that you're a good person or believing that you're a Christian, none of those things save you. Only Jesus saves. And saving faith is believing that. As the song says, which we sing here, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. No, no, no matter how zealous I am, no matter how remorseful I am, no matter how hard I try, none of those things can pay for my sins. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I, I am foul. Fly to the fountain. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So faith is desperation. Faith is dependence. It is childlike faith. Why does your baby cry when they're hungry? It's because they believe you can do something about their hunger. If they didn't believe you could do something about it, they wouldn't bother crying. So these are the words, he who believes in me. The next words, though he may die, he shall live. Short of Jesus returning in the near future, all of us will die, like every generation has died before us. The death rate is still roughly 100%. The promise of this resurrection does not guarantee that we will avoid death, but it means that though we die, we shall live. So what this means is the moment that your believing mother passes from this life into the next, her life has only begun, but she is alive right now. What this also means is you don't have to pray for her. If she's with Christ, she is quite all right. If she's not with Christ, it's too late to change that situation. You don't pray for the dead. And next, you don't pray to the dead. God forbids that. You can take comfort knowing that all of her tears are passed away and that all of her illnesses are healed and all of her wounds have been mended and all of her sorrows have been turned to laughter and all of her fears have been turned to joy. Her faith is now sight and her Savior is closer to her than you are to the person you're sitting next to. The next words to address is, do you believe this? See Jesus probing to Martha. His probing question to Martha is, do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So I ask you, what about you? Do you believe this? And if you don't, why not? 
Have you ever thought about it in that kind of way? Here's my objections. Let me write them on a piece of paper. If you do not believe, why not? Maybe you have long attended this church, but you prefer to straddle the fence. You have one foot with Jesus and one foot with yourself. What prevents you from coming to Christ? I'd ask you, would you look at any of those things and and please weigh them? If you do that, you'll find that these things which hold you back are actually inferior. They are less than what you stand to gain by coming to Christ. So you want to hold on to your sin. Okay, I've heard that before. That's not shocking. So you want to hold on to your sin, but with that sin, you also get guilt. Not just feelings of guilt, but actual guilt. You're guilty. So you're holding on to your sin, but if you were to let go of that, then you would have life and forgiveness. Let me assure you that life and forgiveness is so much better. It's it's literally far greater than the difference between yesterday afternoon's temperature outside and this morning's temperature outside, where you walk out of your home this morning and you're just like, whoa, this is nice. Whereas yesterday afternoon, you're like, this is not nice. (laughs) When you come to Christ and your sin is taken away, it's better than that change in the weather that we could feel. What else are you holding on to? What else holds you back from coming to Christ? Is it perhaps the approval of this world? You know, if if I come to Christ, I'm not going to be popular anymore. There's certain things I'm not going to be able to do with certain people anymore, and that's going to, like, they're, they're going to not like me very much, and then I'll be the, the joke of the office if I do this. I want the approval of this world. If you exchange that, you get the approval of God. Now, how much... Wait, are you giving to the approval of people that you didn't know last year and they're probably not going to be in your life next year? The approval of these coworkers or these strangers or these friends? These friends who you don't actually even like, but you want them to like you. How does that make sense? Please analyze that. The approval of this world or the approval of God. God, the eternal God who created the the world. You know that he's real. We all know that he's real. Why would you not rather make peace with him? Even if the whole world turns against you. They won't. Like a bunch of them will, but there'll still be plenty of other people. Look around you. You see a room full of people that will still love you if you side with team Jesus. Perhaps what holds you back is the idea of status. If I come to Christ, I will lose some status in this short life that is maybe 80 years if I'm lucky. Are you really going to wager having more status in this life and having destitution in the age to come versus saying, hey, you know what? God decides what status I have in this life and, and I'm going to cast my um, 
put all my chips in with team Jesus and whatever my status is in this life is, is up to him, but I will have a place in heaven for eternity. For forever, not just this little window in time. And last, if you come to Christ, you go from being a child of the devil to a child of God. You go from having the worst father who hates you and wants you destroyed to having the best father. Why would you not want that? If there's something in your mind right now as you're listening to this that is starting to think, okay, points are being made. What that is, is that's, that's called the Holy Spirit working in your heart to soften you, to draw you to himself by the power of the gospel. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty, glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us, that you would save those who do not know you, that you would encourage those who are cast down, bring comfort to those who need comfort. I pray for those who are not saved in this room, that you would save them. Grant them faith and repentance to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I pray these things in his name. Amen.